Hello, everybody. This is Dan Woods here from Early Adopter Research. I'm here with Sri Ambadi from H2O.ai. Sri is the CEO of uh, H2O.ai, and it's a company I've written about in 2015 uh, in my Forbes column, uh, where I described their platform and, and, and how it had uh, essentially created a production quality version of many of the algorithms used at that time for machine learning in R. Um, they had created H2O versions of a, a variety of popular functions that allowed people to run in production very reliably and scalably. Now, since then, we, three years have gone by and a lot's happened. Uh, could you explain where the, a, where the, uh, the H2O.ai platform is right now and, and, and how it's evolved since then? Thank you. Th thanks um, for your having us on your podcast. And uh, thanks for writing about us before and following up. Um, and I'm really excited um, to, to mention the success as well as uh, lessons learned from uh, the last uh, now close to six and uh, four, three quarters, six years and three quarters of um, journey with, uh, with our open source and, um, and H2O uh, as a company. How would you define what H2O.ai is right now? So is basically trying to the philosophy behind um, behind how we started the vision, how we started, are still the same, and as as uh, deeply committed to getting the world's most powerful tool chain in AI in the hands and fingertips of the people who need it the most, and oftentimes those people are not the ones with the most uh, ability to pay as well. So democratizing AI has been the theme, and. And that was why we chose open source and started building some really high-grade, venture-funded machine learning algorithms out in the open source, kind of in a very, count, like a, using open source as a movement, uh, as a way to reach wider audience than as an open source as a way to get code, free code. Uh, we were trying to get feedback, not code, through our open source. And uh, satisfying a gap that was m missing for decades, there were a couple of companies that were focused on building mathematical algorithms in good software mindset. And most of the uh, Valley and and rest of the world kind of ignored that space of predictive analytics and building algorithms. We built those algorithms not just um, um, with faster, like a billion row regression with our first generation of products, was it took five seconds, and that was now a, so you can essentially model all the households of um, United States or the world and predict what their future looks like. Now, from from then, we have seen almost rampant adoption of the technology with the second dot AI domain. A lot of folks uh, kind of um, took took. Um, took um, uh, comfort and, and found courage that .ai could be a cool domain. <laughs> and see. we now have um, thousands of companies and the whole AI revolution of, of um, both from investments from companies to entrepreneurs picking that up as a problem to solve in different verticals. So H2O got embedded into a lot of these um, movements. We were the first one there with a very clear mindset of making it an ecosystem play. And um, other um, platforms followed suit, TensorFlow, notably from Google, which was closed source for a very long time, opened itself up in um, around the time of um, year, uh, a year after your article, 2016. And since then, we've seen every major platform that is machine learning start first being open source and then trying to build an ecosystem around it. So now, 15,000 companies end up using H2O today, open source, and about 200,000 data scientists using it on a daily basis as an necessary skill set in doing machine learning. And so, if I were in the enterprise and I was think, trying to, to understand what does H2O dot me, dot, dot, dot mean to me, it, it sounds like what you're saying is that we're not just a we're not a platform like TensorFlow where we're focused on a certain specific type of algorithm that we're implementing. You are more of an umbrella platform, so you could use TensorFlow from 
H2O.AI. We actually do use it. Yeah, and, and you could use many, and any, uh, any important algorithm that comes up, any important library that, yes. that is created, you're going to be able to use from H2O. Okay. And, and the idea is that you're creating uh, an, uh, an enterprise or uh, a, a production quality platform, both for the development of algorithms and the development and the tuning of them, and also for the deployment into production. Exactly. So, and, and so now, in doing that, uh, as an open source company, you have to have a value capture mechanism. So now there's a variety of different ways of capturing value in the open source world. One way that is to create a set of proprietary features that are licensable on top of the open source. Another is to sell support and consulting services. Um, how does H2I uh, make its money? So the vast bulk of our revenue um uh, up until the tail end of 2016, including and followed into 2017, was support and maintenance contracts for our open source H2O platform. Uh, in open source, fundamentally, you get paid for fear, uncertainty, and doubt around your platform. And if you build a really good platform, the fear over time vanishes. As a result, you t tend to see uh, renewals getting at risk and so on and so forth. One of the unique things we've done, uh, kind of inadvertently, but wanted with the vision of trying to make H2O be plugged into all software stacks, because we thought software was eating the world and AI could eat software. Um, we made an automatic generation of code from the model, a core theme of our, of our product. So uh, every time, science, you see, doesn't scale, and but software does, so we, we have, 30 million developers, if they, if even half of them start doing AI, then you can create a massive, bigger movement because software is eating the world and you can change almost every function of the world through AI. And so we took this data science models algorithms and automatically generated code that would then go into, and you write about this in 2015, it act, every cell phone today has a model from H2O's algorithms that pre prevents fraud in the payment systems. M many applications online are using H2O in the website, behind the websites, either doing A-B testing or quantiles or predicting which application you may buy next. And, and just, that, just, that just, just to, to fill in one of the details, the reason that this is important, the reason that you, you were able to do this is that many of the tools that were used were not created by software engineers. So R, for example, was created by people right in the sure. statistics space. Yeah. It has never actually been retooled with professional software engineering, and so your libraries actually provide that missing um, element. Now, those libraries uh, are uh, open source libraries. You just can use them. You don't have to license them, correct? Yeah. Yeah. No, so they're open source Apache license, so you right. can embed them, use them. The crux of um, the conversation where you're taking the scientists and connecting them to producing automatic software was uh, a classic example of, for example, PayPal. Their business team in San Jose identified a problem um, in fraud, and that particular fraud uh, problem was solved by the data scientists in Israel using H2O as a core library, but then it gets deployed by PayPal Shanghai in a low latency environment so it, and high right. volume. And this, is, and this is what you're talking about, the code generation. Correct. From the model, you can generate a Java program that can do the scoring that was created by the model yes. in a high production environment. Correct. That, 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 yeah, and so it, it's, it's, and about, it's that two-phase sort of, uh, of, uh, of aspect of AI. First is the training and creation of the model, and then there's the execution of the model. So, so that code generation is all about creating that production scoring algorithm that, that can run at high speed. Absolutely. Uh, it's also a bridge between two or three different communities, the data engineers, the data scientists, and the software engineers. And there's a bit of a uh, uncertainty between the three folks and a bit of distrust as they come together and closer to build as team. And that's where the uncertainty r uh, remained. So we almost have close to 100% renewal rates because it's not about the software product being buggy or difficult to use or the implementation hours needed to be spent. Our open source created a natural has a natural tension because it can, can, can connects three different communities, and as a result, any one of them deciding to buy a support license got us the support contract. 
So unlike traditional open source plays where they are trying to build a, a layer on the top we, uh, to create more, uh, the core is reasonably difficult to use or edgy and rough edges and on top of it you wrap it up with a package it with a smooth uh, closed source product. Our, op our, close our open source product was actually very easy to use. It's dead simple. In fact, it needs very little support and maintenance costs on our side. But because of the natural tension within three different communities using it, they chose to have a preferred vendor at the center to play um, kind of almost... Um, the integration role. Yeah. And, and, and to support the integration in, in a sense. Yeah, essentially. Got it. So now, so now, and then... Your, so your business model, are you, is, your, you've, is your business model evolving from oh, absolutely. The, uh, the, the support only uh, business absolutely. model? Absolutely. So, so so, but wins from these customers paying support maintenance, several of them are in the traditional enterprise platform plays of seven-figure contracts, um, ended up getting us into the Gartner top, top position in, in amongst the peers. And uh, we, we basically began to serve customers very strongly and with a devotion to make them successful, that they have essentially given us top scores in customer support and um, sensitive sensitivity to f their feedback. But fast forward, turn of 2016, um, one of certain things happened. AI not only st started eating software, and when I say AI is eating software, I mean it more in the broader sense of in the 80s, AI was basically expert systems and it produced rule engines. Rule engines ended up becoming policy servers and all the software for the next 10-15 years was using rule engines. Whether it's ACL lists in security or creating a set of rules for in your classic enterprise middleware, um, all, of the, uh, all of the software for the next 20 years was based on rule engines. Now statistical machine learning uh, produced new ways of producing m this software rules, if you will, derived from data directly. So this machine learning, the code, inference code, if you will, is actually nothing but a generated set of rules. And so now so almost all the software we had previously coded by observing data and coming up with logic um, with the human intuition is now can be almost offloaded to AI to produce those right. engines. So we saw that all of software is gonna be replaced with or rewritten or, or bet made better with AI we had also kind of expected, but it, it had happened much faster than we even anticipated, is AI started influencing hardware. The, the workloads of software transformed hardware and um, the rise of um, GPUs and um, newer technologies like even TPUs, PGAs for, to, to serve ASICs, to serve uh, AI workloads became much more prevalent and accepted by turn of 2016. And so we, we did a, uh, an experiment to see how our machine learning platform ported to GPUs will do, NVIDIA GPUs. And before we knew, we, it was another 20, 30x faster. Right. So we, from five seconds, we went to now hundreds of micros and for a billion row regression. That means that now we can do a lot more within the second. And at a, at a sub-second level, so going from eight hours to eight minutes or eight seconds meant that you could use human click stream mindsets to do things. But now at millis and micros, you're really um, at a point where you have to automate it. You can automate it, afford to run what thousands of experiments at the same time it would take to run one experiment. So, so that got us to thinking how do I expand the uh, core um, value proposition of H2O and instead of instead of focusing just on what I call the assembly language of AI, which is machine learning algorithms. Got it. Can we now build a compiler which automatically generates the right uh, for a given problem at hand with a given data set, it's a time series problem predicting weekly sales, can I automate the so, right set? So, so this, is, uh, this is similar to the like automated machine learning program, or, uh, um, uh, approach that something like a data robot uses for creating predictive models. It's just a little bit more generic. It's the design patterns for all sorts of automatic machine learning, if you right. will. Now, uh, data robot was one of the early players who mentioned this 
as their core focus. Um, but they were kind of unable to go down the layers and look at, say, the rise of GPUs. Because we, we built machine learning algorithms, we could go one layer below and said, okay, let's port this and see what happens. Let's port this to other platforms and take advantage of the end-to-end -end stack that can then um, transform the entire space. And having learned from what they have done, uh, kind of we, we think of them as the MySpace of the space, right? sort of how do we come in and learn from their mistakes and learn from their wins because they were using H2O, they are part of the ecosystem. We then said, can we come up with the templates? And we call them recipes. Can we come up with the recipes for each one of these? And those families of recipes, some which we build, some which our customers can build, our communities can build. So we then took advantage of our open source mindset and made a collaborative uh, framework which others can add their own vertical recipes. And while we are focused on building the horizontal recipes, and then integrating it with other Google AutoML, for example, or integrating it with Amazon's SageMaker, or even other frameworks. Uh, being a very open, um, kind of wanting the overall AI space to succeed, um, we chose a very kind of a templatized, modular right. architecture. And so, and so just as their, their, their idea of predictive modeling for you know, predicting a, uh, a dependent variable from a bunch of independent variables, you then said that's just one recipe. Yes. And then you have like other recipes for yes. rule derivation, and, and where where in the same way it would inside that recipe it would do the automated machine learning and determine which of a number of different approaches are going to be most successful, and then generate the solution. Yes. So so each of your recipes is another context. It's a whole for class of problems. Yes, exactly. Got it. Okay. It's a whole class of problems. And then uh, for text and LP. And that's what you call driverless AI. Yes, we put the uh, umbrella driverless AI. Now it uses, kind of much like you, you kind of posited, it uses TensorFlow, it uses H2O, it uses other frameworks, XGBoost, LightGBM. Uh, it's Cafe. very, yeah, it's, uh, it's not religious. PyTorch. PyTorch, for example, yeah. which, which passed that barrier. Um, and we also took, um, so we expanded the core team to reflect that. So if you think about uh, when we met you, we're one of the few compiler systems engineers who essentially are building uh, closely with mathematicians and physicists. Physics folks became the core of the company. From there we expanded to, um, as data scientists were using our product, we put some data scientists to see how to, how to get the customer in-house. But we found that the Kaggle grandmasters, some of these advanced data scientists with specific alchemy-like skills to build these solve this family of problems. We picked some of the top, brightest people from the Grand Masters uh, uh, in Kaggle and empowered them to be the chief architects of Driverless AI. So instead, instead of trying to give them recipes to build, we took their recipes right. and productized them because of the rest of the uh, systems thinking we have in the company. So in many ways, uh, we, we called actually, in fact, one of one of one such top grandmaster on our team was called Mark Landry, and um, and if you think about um, when we he was so good, we wanted to automate how he was doing, and so we called it Auto ML. Auto, Auto Mark, Mark Landry, Landry. <laughs> and and also Auto Machine Learning. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and another great grandmaster we have actually in um, uh, in feature engineering. He does he uses a genetic algorithm to do feature evolution. Historically, features were being, dimensionality reduction was the direction we had taken because we couldn't scale to large thousands, millions of dimensions, thousands to millions of dimensions. With H2O th um, mindset of scalability across multiple dimensions, we actually do the reverse problem, which is we actually solve it the other way around, turn it upside down and evolve the features using a genetic algorithm with a fitness function as well. Right, and then you determine which ones, which features are, are, in, are, are increasing are the accuracy. Are increasing the accuracy by running the full algorithm. Right. So it, it almost. So, so just let's just recap. So basically, where H2O is at right now is that you've gone from improving some core uh, uh, machine, uh, learning. Uh, machine learning algorithms to creating a machine learning environment where you can do driverless AI, and then you've also expanded with a couple of adaptations like the sparkling water 
where you're, you know. Uh, sparkling water is taking our machine learning algorithm and, to Spark. And you're putting, you're, in, 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 you're allowing that, that to work in Spark. Absolutely. Um, and uh, are, are there any other uh, uh, parts the of three, the product? This is the three core the uh, H2O, offerings. Sparkling, sparkling water, water, and driverless AI. AI. Okay, so now. And, and, and driverless AI, interestingly mm -hmm. enough, we chose it to be a proprietary license. Oh, okay, so you did, you did. We did evolve on that side. Got it. Right, so then you have the open source flavors of pure machine learning and its connectors into Spark, its connectors into right. Hadoop, that whole ecosystem being open. And then so you have and closed source product And on built top. a completely new product, which okay. is solving the uh, concept of feature engineering, right. experimental but it, efficiency, preventing overfitting, but very, and add that. But there's a very clean break. It's a clean, because, different, it's a yeah, different. Because underneath, all of the algorithms are the open source, yes. but then on top, the AutoML yes. is your proprietary product. Right. Well, that's good. So, and that's where you get the seven-figure deals because you're not going to. No, we actually have all our seven-figure deals from open source. Well, believe it or not. Okay, because so, it, so because you have seven-figure so support deals. Yes, essentially. Yes, because they are very. Um, see, the, the the value. So, problems we're solving. Some of them are something like anti-money laundering. A fine right. fine from for that is in the hundreds of millions of and, dollars. And how do you capture the value on that? Is it is it by core? Do you su charge support by cores, or do you charge support by your named users? Mem memory was, the, so in open source, we wanted as many users as possible, and so there we ch priced it by memory, but most mem most most systems uh, at a terabyte or so are pretty happy. Right. And um, on the closed source, we have a per seat license and a consumption model license. Okay. Um, the, the per seat is when you have data scientists using driverless AI. And uh, in, as a, as in compared to other um, uh, players in the space, our vision is to augment and enhance data scientists to do more as opposed to replace right. a data scientist. The way to think about it is, it, well, all the things that data scientists. Um, there, there's still a chef in the kit. There's still a chef in the kitchen. They have a power tool. It doesn't work without a chef in the kitchen. Right. But the chef has now lots of appliances, yes. and that make the, and it, it outcomes the model at the end. Yes, the and model, the deployment, and the software, and the, and the explanation, software. the pipeline. So mm -hmm. the now we've gone from just being a scoring engine output to a pipeline output. In other words, we also do the feature transformation plus the algorithm. Right. So it's now a full-fledged, um, almost a, a full-fledged, ready-to-be-a-packaged right. application, if yeah, you will. Yeah, so you can automate, you can do the automated machine learning to understand what the data can tell you, and then you can do the automated machine learning to take those signals and yeah. then make them into a predictive model or yeah. whatever it is you're yeah. doing. But this still solves only two of the major crises in uh, AI. One is the talent crisis, and there's not enough time, time being if your competition is already adopted AI, you need to race to finish it. The third crisis in AI right now is trust. How do we trust that this model is doing well? Right? And almost every time we run into um, other tool chains, customers have considered they allow us on this one aspect where our focus has been, even this comes from our, our background in having to build these algorithms ourselves and use them, is that we, we want to know what are the safety conditions for this, what are the boundary conditions. Just like any software that has unit testing frameworks, how do we figure out the safety criteria for our production model that we just deployed? And kind of the fitness, and when do we know it's no longer as good as it was before because the world is constantly changing. And so that kind of explainability or interpretability of models in production and creating the boundary conditions of its of its um, behaviors and treating um, models in production as if they're intelligent things and how do you kind of create other intelligent things that keep them in guard and how do you get them to consent, collaborate or conflict? And, and, and I've heard this discipline called uh, analytics ops in a way because the idea is you have a certain set of analytics or AI that has been deployed and you're constantly watching that to see is it still working? Is it getting worse? Is it getting better? And then you have candidate algorithms, several maybe, that are also running in parallel. Mm -hmm. And you're watching those to mm -hmm. see if those are doing better, doing worse. And then it's a, just a constant cycle of, like, oh, it's now time to retire this algorithm and put a new one in. It seems like we'll get a better result. Or it's time, now time to add this algorithm you know, to the to post-process the predictions or, or whatever it is. It's not, it's never set it and forget it. It's, it's, a, yep. it's a constant uh, rebalancing. Yeah. 
Well, AI ops or DevOps for data science, as they call it, they all uh, started at several levels. You see a whole slew of products that emerge in that space. But where we are thinking of both the AutoML space is and the explainability space is we have to seek, um, uh, so just like expensive DBAs emerged after the rise of databases, ML is the new SQL. And so we have the data scientists, really good ones, becoming quickly the most expensive resources in building AI-first applications. So what we ended up now looking to see is, can we now create an AI that can build most of AutoML VCs as an AI to do AI? Can I use AI to at least reduce the complexity of building a model? Can I use AI to prevent overfitting? Can I use techniques that the top 10 pitfalls we used to teach in our meetups, can I get um, um, AI program to upfront correct for those, account for those, make sure the experimental error doesn't right, and so creep in. So, okay, and so you're, 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 you're kind of codifying some of that expertise. Yes, in, in in, into software, and more importantly, um, where it cannot be a rule engine, it becomes another model that keeps our model at in, in, okay. in place. So AI to explain AI. So it's like a, a meta AI. Or, yes, or, yes. So now, now let's move on to some of the uh, more practical topics where we talk about how we're going to how AI is going to be applied, how ML is going to be applied, and some of the the things we, we talked about when we were prepping for the interview. So I'd like your comment, which was which is contrary to to um, to uh, what I had said about my theory of uh, AI productization. So. My view is that the vast majority of companies are not going to use a H2O, but are going to use products developed by people who use H2O. Mm. And so um, I will then be able to buy those products, and, those, and, and, in, and in order to use those products successfully and use them in better than anybody else, I need to be a sophisticated consumer, so I need to know when somebody's suggesting, well, here's a cup of coffee, and I'm going to put half and half and lemon in it, you know, and, 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 you know, so if you're combining certain approaches, well, obviously that doesn't make sense. Or if, if, you, if, you, if you can't make certain representations about the amount of data that you have or how things have been trained, maybe, you know, the, the, the approach would be suspect. So at some level, people need to be able to detect things that don't make sense and understand, you know, as a sophisticated consumer does, uh, you know, what, what the way AI is being used in products. Now, they don't have to be data scientists. They just have to have a general idea of it. And so the second thing I think is the way that you can successfully use products is to master your data landscape. And what I mean by that is understanding what is all the data that you have, how can I clean that data, how can I um, uh, manipulate, reshape that data, how can I deliver for any single workload as fast as possible the data that's relevant to that workload. And if I am able to do that better than other people, the products, the AI products that I have will work better than they would for me than they would work for other people. Now, you're, you had a contrarian view to that, uh, that, that, that uh, uh, vision. No, I think um, any, any um, systems revolution or technology innovation um, that doesn't produce consumable applications will die, will not take fruition. Um, big, big, big data is a notable, um, notable uh, example where it did not produce a huge ecosystem of big data applications because the average application doesn't necessarily have that problem. Um, plus, the APIs were not necessarily there to build an application. So we are clearly not saying that. We are saying AI-first applications will rule the future. In fact, almost all applications, all verticals are being touched already, whether uh, uh, whether in the uh, enterprise space or even the consumer space, and in the government space, to be honest. Um, the whole geopolitical landscape is being impacted by AI today. And so AI is touching every phase of life. AI is going to 3D print AI, right, sort of to, to give the level of ASICs that we will see in the future that will pervade every form of life. Uh, in fact, H2O AI is named such that H2O is needed for life on this planet and AI for life on other planets. And, and so, and the fa fact that AI should be like water, 
So, that is the kind of mission we have been on and I think that is we are quite fortunate to see that it might be possible within within the same lifetime, mm -hmm. right, which is which is great. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to um, overhype the space to a point where a large uh, there is dramatic fear in the uh, population that AI is actually going to replace humans everywhere and create a, a chaos um, in the economy as well as in the overall um, world as we see it today. I think that's necessarily uh, the whole uh, idea of truly generalized AI is probably a few epochs away. Um, we want to make sure we demystify and give tool chain to be able to safely build and deploy these apps. Right, and so do you believe that people who are, have a better mastery of their data supply chain will be able to more successfully the deploy AI? The fastest time to market for people uh, is the ones who have a well-defined data um, supply chain, which is a great, um, a great concept, right? Sort of, it's a new theme in the space. The fastest way they can get to market is having their data in order, much like the way you mentioned. But one of the interesting nuances, the topic where I d the place where I diverge from them, all that, is data is very interesting. Data has gravity, so you have, you're pulled into the uh, supply chain on-prem as opposed to going on, 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 on the cloud or in the newer technology ways. Data has uh, expiry date. So if you've not used, for someone has not used their data, historical data, over the last six, 12, two, two, six months to two years, most of the data is not, no longer that interesting for um, future events, uh, in, this, in especially in. Right, yeah, like last, two years ago, I bought a, a waffle iron, you know. How does that matter today? Exactly. Right, okay. Right. So, so data's uh, expiry date means that people th who think that they have this vast amounts of data as their advantage are going to be suddenly uh, in a shock. Uh, what um, the second big development that's happening is generative data. People can create um, almost very um, real looking fake uh, data sets. Uh, we are seeing some of that as fake news um, right. and fake emails that go out. But even uh, well, the most interesting thing I heard about that was a, a very an analogy of ad fraud, yes. where they use they in the ad fraud world. What they did was they did it just like money laundering. They created a, a huge footprint of apps, and then inside those apps, they would insert traffic that was fraudulent traffic to generated to to to, to generate clicks on ads that looked like real traffic from those apps. And uh, it's just like money laundering, mm -hmm. where you take money and you put the money you want to launder into a stream of money that's actually Good legitimate. One. Legitimate one. And, and, you, and that's how you mix it and wash it. And so um, <laughs> uh, uh, I can understand that sort of generated data. Uh, Plus also the algorithms um, um, that, that dominated the first few epochs of machine learning evolution that we're seeing in post-2010 were mostly labeled um, supervised learning, um, predominantly supervised learning algorithms. Now, and, though, and by that you mean uh, a, uh, a set of things was coded by people to be, this is a monkey, this is a dog, this is a plant, and then, labeled. And then they would be labeled, and then or the algorithm would then Try to money see laundering, not a money so money laundering. Take, taking your ex ex example next is created uh, suspicious reports, right? right? And those reports were then human curated to saying, is this good or bad? And that good or bad uh, create. I mean, to be very safe, customers ended up create banks ended up creating very large um, positives of which again a large chunk of them are false positives. Right, right, right. right. But the po true positives were the ones that you need to feed back to improve the algorithm. Now, the newer uh, advent of the newer techniques like GANs and others where you can now generate data and create an adversarial network that essentially fights this generated data uh, uh, detecting what is fake and what is real to the point where together they're able to identify the problem. Um, so so the, newer the newest, newer techniques now rely on less data um, also can create uh, pre-labeled data sets. So to, in to a sense, you, what you're doing is you're allowing the, the AI to play itself the same way AlphaGo 
played itself and got better by playing itself. Yes. And and the nuance there is that then suddenly um, we have a we have a uh, a regime uh, shift, if you will. So so your 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 point is that that it's great. You can't. You're certainly not arguing against having a good data supply chain. But you're saying that if you think that that's going to be the biggest advantage, it may not be. And if you think that's going to be sufficient for success, it's, 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 it's going to have to be supplemented with a variety of other ways of using data, whether it's generating data or other techniques that, are, that go beyond just having a good data supply chain. Yeah, I think the fundamental um, value creation, at least the easiest of the value creation with AI, is taking a very important business process that the, that the customer has and then reducing its time from six months to say six days or six hours. Uh, simple example, um, if you're leasing an, a property, today that's a multi-month lease negotiation process. And in New York City, we're trying to open offices here, and you know that it takes time. It were, I mean, since 1910, the code and building policies haven't changed much. And then you look at WeWork, which you can rent or get an office space in a matter of few minutes. And so the combination, the, the, the disruption that they're getting from Airbnb and WeWork should get them up to speed. And AI can certainly help uh, the, uh, the, this industry, this particular industry to, to kind of, um, in fact, figure out their own um, tenant credit histories based on what they have done for the last many years and start acting in, on the, uh, taking advantage of the data they have and doing even better than say, uh, new incumbents, uh, new, uh, uh, new startups, uh, upstarts in the space. So I think that, that kind of um, um, transformation of business processes from what would have taken many years to underwrite or many, one, many expensive underwriters um, will now basically, it's a, it's a people um, challenge, uh, process challenge as much as, as data challenge. So how do you see, um, I'd like to switch gears a little bit. Uh, one of the places I've been studying is, um, is, is cybersecurity. And there's a huge amount of applications of AI in cybersecurity for everything from anomaly detection to uh, you know, various types of active defense. Um, uh, how is a space like cybersecurity being affected by the kind of things that, that, uh, that, that H2O offers? Cybersecurity is a very um, um, mature space for algorithms. Right? Sort of, it's almost like algo trading. Has been always um, the best algorithms um, uh, have always been um, uh, ha have always been in use, both bo both by both sides of the of the um, equation. The folks trying to protect and the folks that have been trying to attack. And they've always used distributed uh, means of attacks. Um, and corporations are now are particularly susceptible to algorithmic um, attacks coming from everywhere in the world. Um, and uh, with the proliferation of devices, uh, whether it's cell phones or um, even small even thermostats, uh, programmable devices, we now have more vectors of attack than before. And um, everything, in every, every bit and piece in that whole equation is a time series. And so time series um, problems, um, streaming data and time series problems have, um, have occupied a bulk of our automatic machine learning thinking and a large part of um, AI uh, research has, uh, has changed how we look at time series, both at the micro tick level for um, microsecond tick level in the capital markets to um, weekly sales predictions for retailers to actually um, what used to be a more of a, a simple RIMA, RIMA techniques have now gone on to be more advanced deep learning methods uh, that combine um, multi-sensor uh, multi, multi fusion, if you will, uh, combine text data with time series and transactional data and kind of build a much more um, um, kind of AI, uh, for, uh, it, so it, it makes the problem more uh, open for a, a so solution through AI. Uh, 
So, so we're seeing um, um, analysis of threats to vulnerabilities, to kind of vulnerability analysis, figuring out um, how data is flowing through different parts of my infrastructure, uh, how processes are going through those infrastructure, um, and and label them at the first sign of an anomaly, and then track them, allowing building tools that can take the um, take the protectors of these systems at the point of attack, not just after intrusion, um, or after intrusion doing the usual normal things where um, how to how to make sure you address the breach in time, address what happens after um, a breach, both on the Twitter online sentiment to kind of making sure that you're um, to educating your uh, shareholders and board on what exactly has has happened, what was the extent of the of the breach, and kind of creating uh, quantifiable ways of saying we got better. So overall, it's traditional housekeeping can be mostly automated with AI. Um, the workforce has become very dynamic, working from home, working from globally. So then traditional rule-based systems, which expected eight to five or nine to four kind of work um, life balances are no longer applicable. And so we need to rebuild those rules for each organization based on the data that's happening there. So AI just enables that overall understanding how our employees work, how the insiders are moving and using our systems. So you predict it's just going to be, it's going to make almost every type of cybersecurity better? Yes. yes Got it. Yes. And so yeah. now, one of the things that, that uh, is tempting to do with all of these tools out there is to roll your own AI solution. And so obviously you're a, an advocate of, um, of uh, using AI. But, and, and as I said earlier, my view is that AIs is going to be adopted the most widely through products that other people create and then sell, and then most people will use those products. Now, I believe that there's going to be, just as there are in every, um, every era, a lot of people who sort of want to punch above their, their weight class, and they say, that instead of waiting for the products or using products, will actually try to develop AI, you know, when maybe they shouldn't. You know, and so what, what do you think the necessary conditions are so that 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 it's that where it makes sense for you to actually do the work to develop your own, you know, AI ML solution. And when when what are the signs that you maybe should just wait and use somebody else's product? Well, I think the, I mean, if you think about it, it's a matter of getting the rest of the rest of the industry to code on the vision that we have wanted. It's not just us coding on machine learning algorithms. Everybody is coding machine learning algorithms, very large software stacks, Google, Microsoft. Even now NVIDIA announced their own GPU. After we moved machine learning to GPUs, then the GPU maker is like, wow, this is a great idea, let's do this. So there's others who have come in, and then with enough of them doing it, there is no, no um, uh, doubt in our mind that machine learning and AI as if software fundamental stacks are here to stay, which is great. Now, we ourselves um, disrupted by going one layer above and starting to use other algorithms instead of recording a PyTorch or recording a, um, a, a deep learning uh, GAN algorithm implementation in Keras uh, underlying TensorFlow. Um, so there's no, no, even ourselves being from the space have chosen at times to collaborate, at times to build, at times to fill the gaps where needed, where others are not yet focused on. Because overall, we want to make sure, um, at least in the Western world, um, we want to make sure we have all the algorithms of the world's best kind uh, at easy access. And I use the word Western world mostly because now we are beginning to see the rise of better AI in, in other parts of the world. China has arguably better AI than most of the stacks we see here, um, mostly because of their unfettered access to data to one, one, uh, some level. But um, now with this 
almost AI becoming a major um, must-have for largest countries in the world to um, largest corporations in the world, there is a temptation to build algorithms that have been built already. And uh, some companies have done that and successfully even actually delivered good, um, delivered um, non-generic, customized engine for their use to a point it's much better than the generic platform. It becomes a um, kind of their, their IP, if you will, or their um, advantage over the next competitor coming into that space. But algorithms are no longer the code. Algorithms is code, and code is a commodity through open source. Now, and that deflationary aspect of open source and technology in general um, sh is, is, is playing against anybody who's trying to go build generic architectures, generic uh, core algorithms all over again. Inventing net new math has some value, and that's happening in spades across economic world circles because of the AI. And we work closely with university professors and some of them funding their work to even getting them to advise us and learning the latest wins. Google is doing the same, Microsoft research. Um, I think what is critical for a good AI-first application is actually ability to make new data, which is forcing feedback from the user base. So every company today, very large company today, faces a existential threat from AI. In other words, if they don't transform themselves, their business processes with AI, someone else will. And what every large company today has a, a massive advantage to their side, which is they have a strong brand and they have a community of users. And it is in their interest to get those community of users to give feedback. And feed, feedback in a way that no one else can get. And so AI-first economies are going to be dominated by companies that integrate that feedback loops back to improving their data ecosystem and using that to then go build a better application. So, so here we go back to the data supply chain, but what you're saying is it's not just about having a data supply chain that is able to move and transform data, it's about having a data supply chain that has can create or uh, somehow find data that nobody else has. Yes, the unique value prop, right. Now the other aspect of this is giant conglomerates, say Alibaba, have a, have a distinctive advantage in using AI. And uh, this boils down to thinking of who is your competitor. It's no longer an insurance company's competitor is no longer its near next door insurance company or a payment um, pay, uh, systems company is no longer it's no longer uh, it's a, a better credit card. It's really other software companies which are coming in with AI into their space. So data is a horizontal play. And so the best discoveries in a particular business unit oftentimes are not useful to that business unit. Pencil in itself was an accidental discovery in science, and the same kind of things are happening every day in the industries today because it's industrial data science. You, you pencil, you mean like a? Pencilin. Pe oh, penicillin. Penicillin, penicillin yeah. yes, yeah. And so there's a lot of accidental discovery from doing data science everywhere, including the industries. And so uh, a payroll company could find out that they can predict the salaries of any company's employees for the next five years. But that doesn't help the payroll company um, win a customer. Um, they're judged by can they, can they support a new geography or can they support new city. But next five year salary is useful for a Carnival Cruise company or a car company that's trying to sell cars or, or someone else who's trying to um, give them uh, access to credit. So I think that kind of uh, ability to transcend the traditional boundaries of a business unit and creating kind of a marketplace of sorts for intelligence but, but, within but, the company. But do you have any uh, guidance for people about when to and when not to uh, you know, try to do your own, roll your own AI? I think it doesn't... Because um, you, you, you had a slide there about our AI risks. Yes, so, so the biggest AI risk um, that we see is actually uh, around, um, around not having um, the right kind of talent to apply on the problems at hand. 
um, a very large uh, credit card company down down the street here in New York City, we're here, um, was always building their own algorithmic platforms, even in gradient boosting machines and other pieces. And for years, they were right in their decision when there was no viable open source or viable alternative out there that was really good. And now it's been now proven that not just us, but several people after that have built good machine learning um, platforms that at least for that particular mathematical technique, most of the easily available pla platforms are really good or top notch. Now, if, if someone comes up with a new mathematical technique that is not yet available, and Tencent has a few of them, then they could choose to build it themselves and keep it proprietary and have that advantage over the rest of the world. And I think um, even that large credit card company has now adopted open source uh, after six, seven years of delay of getting it into that, uh, into their stacks. Now they had the wherewithal to build it, but couldn't retain the talent. Over time, AI became hot, and these quantitative um, the systems builders left the building, joined Facebooks and Google and others. So, so it's uh, very important to pick um, the battle at the right level, at the level of um, um, at the level of infrastructure, other infrastructure companies, such as large software companies, uh, trying to build AI into every software stack, have essentially put up a very strong um, front for building the best um, tools or tool chain out there. Now that said, Google was the thirteenth search engine. There's no no way to say it wasn't the first search engine. Right, right. So just like search or internet, AI is again a very massive long play. This is still the second or first innings, it was ML if you call it AutoML, the second innings. And so there's a long dozen innings ahead of us to really have this okay. mature. And companies that um, um, that try to not use outside um, platforms that succeeded, let's say Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix built their own platform and chose to ignore um, um, trying to learn the open source frameworks that are still changing and molding around um, this time. And when they started, they basically chose to build their own, attracted talent from Netflix, and then uh, customized everything and ended up winning. Um, but the real cause celebrate for their win, or the real reason they for their win was ability to force a feedback. They would ship the clothes at your doorstep. You had to send the violet, uh, keep the violet sweater or ship the yellow one back. And that gave them additional information that no one else had of which colors you don't like. Right. And so that's, that was probably the more uh, aha moment of their, um, of their overall uh, cycle. Right. That, 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 that created more value than the, the proprietary stack. Yes. Got it. Yeah. But, but to your point, I think it's a very, it's attractive for software engineers compiler engineers coming into the space uh, and trying to fall into that, I need to go build the full so, stack. So what stuff. you're saying essentially is it's sort of like uh, being an actor or comedian or whatever. You know, am I, are you going to sit here and say, you will not be the next, you know, Leonard DiCaprio or Claire Danes. You're not going to say that. Don't, you're, are you going to say to people, don't try to be Claire Danes, don't try to be Leonard DiCaprio? No, you're not going to say that. You should try um, knowing that you know it's not easy, and and uh, that doesn't mean that you might not be successful if you have the right talent, if you have the right data, if you develop a way to create data that nobody else has and get feedback nobody else can get, you have a high chance of success. Now, you know, uh, you can learn from others and and everything, but so you're essentially saying, look, I'm not going to wave people off. You know, I'm going to I'm going to encourage them. Yeah, no, I think the bigger challenge uh, is actually. Um, AI touches all the, all, all, I mean, it's in a hedge fund or in a Google-like environment, um, or in a startup-like environment like ours, all the world, the world's best grandmaster, literally the world's number one data scientist, and the world's best designer, and the world's best physicist and software compiler engineer sitting on the same table. And then a software engineering DSL, do domain-specific language expert framework builder, is leading that charge and has a team around building frameworks for middleware in this space. It doesn't happen often that a big bank or a big insurance company or a big healthcare company 
have all of them sitting under one ta one roof m much much likely they're in three different cities and and working on completely different projects so i think the bigger challenge for being being in the ai uh, first economy if you will would be to bring that transformative aspect of can i bring the best of breed from my company put them what take them away from what they're doing ask them to focus on this problem the transformational nature of ai culture means that it will come back with a counterintuitive it's the money ball for business it's going to come back with a completely different um, um, viewpoint on a problem on a solution than what was preconceived and the the courage to make those choices that ai is recommending needs um, needs one to think out of the box and those kind of the trans the the people and the process side of ai because it touches so many different departments and different culture different skills makes it a difficult uh, piece to adopt the other aspect of ai which is actually again a very um, lesser talked about topic is ai is both available to to good and to to evil and so we are seeing the rise of ai that is trying to kind of take over even the democratic process and so how do we build a strong uh, ethical uh, backing for ai and of course this is the least talked about topics right right in uh, in industry uh, how do we take the best of people of our of our generation have them solve the most purposeful problems as opposed to the and so creating much more uh, imagination and so push so with automatic science to the atle or semi automatic science science becomes easier to do the last 500 years has been science was the most important thing to do so the the onus now pushes to how do we get imagination and purpose and uh, and and power them with data so that ai can solve that problem i think the onus shifts away from even traditional um um worshiping if you will of the latest uh, speeds and feeds and technology that comes from the valley i think the new new world will be more around am i applying my best talent to solve the most important problem for my company most important problem for my community and how do i use either open source or open data or data privacy movements to create a much more um trust for my brand a community it's now proven that people who build good communities live longer and so being a so social animal we will end up having to build large communities and using ai and open source and open data to create that community of trust and value is going to be interesting for the economy and my last question is uh, about open source and that is how do you interpret the importance of the purchase of red hat by ibm very pertinent question i actually think it's probably the, the they got a uh, fantastic um it was a fantastic move a fantastic deal in my view um again um it's not for for both sides for for both for IBM um that hat is the only uh, proven large open source company with a uh, tremendous track record and deployments across uh, every every industry and um so it was a one of a kind um is if if in the red hat is the taj mahal of open source right so it's one of a kind nobody knows it's in it's it's in open source land it's not, but it has for every dollar an open source company makes it has not made 50 dollars or sometimes 99 so open source if it's making a uh, a billion dollars really a, a 50 in closer would have been a 40 50 billion dollar kind of revenue company So from that standpoint I think it's a very very sweet hot uh, deal in many ways for IBM despite what the markets might think right now um it might it will infuse them with an amazing bounty of leadership and uh talented uh, open source um uh, professionals across every aspect uh, open source is no longer a a good to have or something you have uh, alongside a closed source offering open source first can and then try to build monetization strategies around it build a large community first and then create monetization or just like how facebook or google created a very large free easy to use 
uh, platform and then started monetizing on top. I think that's kind of what the enterprise is taking the same route. Um, Microsoft has done a phenomenal job in catching up from being the uh, villain of the first open source movements to the leader of the current open source movements. I think IBM was actually through Eclipse, had almost Eclipse Sun uh, in Java in trying to build an IDE that was open source and uh, has been historically, SUSE Linux and other ways has been a strong open source, it understood open source along um, quite a bit, but of, of late has lost a large part of that luster. I think this brings them straight back at the center of the software uh, game. And I think uh, this, this is, a, is, a, is a kind of a game changer for the space between Red Hat, IBM now, and Microsoft, and Google's uh, cloud platforms, and Amazon's cloud platforms. So Do you think that it'll accelerate the replacement of Watson's proprietary technology with uh, open source technology that is branded as Watson? I think Red Hat uh, hasn't done a lot of investments in uh, in AI, right? Sort of um, certainly has done a lot of investments in the cloud stack. So I think this is probably uh, has an immediate impact on the uh, cloud wars and the on-prem versus cloud wars, if you will, and strengthens IBM's on-prem offerings as well, and uh, through OpenStack and uh, in the cloud and on-prem uh, file system stores that they bring to the table for into and not to say JBoss, middleware, and um, and the Linux OS itself, right? I think um, AI, um, I think um, the, the it's still a open sore wound for, Watson is still an open sore wound for IBM on that front. And I think um, they're, so con they're continuing to invent themselves, even within, uh, we work closely with them and can't make too many comments, but uh, they're one of our strong partners uh, for redistributing our product on the power architecture, but the Power AI uh, aims to be Red Hat for TensorFlow, and there are other open ecosystems they're trying to build. But historically, the uh, Watson ecosystem is closed, and I think this is, this should uh, it should take the same path where eventually they will have to seek open ecosystems in uh, AI as well. Got it. Um, but TensorFlow is the king of uh, king of that jungle for them. Well, Sri, thank you very much. I appreciate your time with me today. And uh, again, this was an early adopter research podcast on AI and related topics with Sri Ambati, CEO of H2O AI. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dan, for having us. Mm -hmm.